Amen. God is the way maker, and he has been the way maker in so many ways in the life of our church, in the life of our families in the church and individuals, and we're just so, so thankful for that. We are so glad you're here. This is baptism weekend, so we are celebrating lives transformed by the gospel. And we're so glad that you're here. You can have a seat if you're in the blue seats. Welcome to those who are watching online. A lot of stuff that's happening in the life of our church. We're so glad that you're with us. We want you to not miss uh, kind of some things that are going on. So take a look at Roddy and some of the announcements. Hey, Fairfax. It has been such a pleasure over the past few weeks to get to meet all of the new families that have joined here. If today's your first day, stop by that welcome table out there. We would love to get the conversation started. If you're still looking for a way to kind of get involved and get engaged here at Fairfax, groups is an incredible way to do that. There's a button above. If you're at home, you can find out some more information. Or again, if you're here in the blue seats, stop by and see Josh and we'll find the right group for you. One of the questions that I've been asked so frequently that I finally get to answer for you is when is the coffee shop opening? Starting the weekend of May 1st, we will be open on the weekend services. If you haven't had the opportunity to stop by the coffee shop, it's such an incredible opportunity to just connect with those around you and engage with some really, really good fresh roasted coffee. So stop on by. If you're interested in volunteering in the coffee shop, you can always email me at ronniecruz@fairfax.cc. Or for the next two weekends, I'll be having some open house training in the great room from 1230 to 3.30 on Sundays. Feel free to stop on by and see what it's all about. Hope to see you there. While I would love to have all of you serving with me in the coffee shop, that's just not how reality is going to work. So whether you're attending in person or you're still online, we have opportunities for everyone to serve. Visit our website and fill out that form there that's really easy and we'll find the right opportunity for you. We love you, Fairfax. We're so glad you're here. I love how much Fairfax loves coffee. It's just like coffee shops open, yeah! Like Jesus is alive, yeah, yeah, coffee shops opening, woo! We're excited, so we, we are excited about that and uh, lots of kind of new things that, uh, things that we're starting back up and uh, gonna kind of gradually put in place over the next couple of months and uh, we're so excited about that. And I'm really excited about um, a kind of a refresh that we've done to um, our, our look, our brand, uh, our graphic, uh, kind of the things that go out that represent Fairfax Church. And uh, I just wanted you to see it today because you're gonna be seeing it a lot. So this is our new logo, and it's just kind of a little tweak on what we've done before. A couple things that you'll notice are different. Uh, the design is a little bit different in that uh, at the center of it is something that kind of points to the cross. Uh, before it was a diamond, we're not sure what that was pointing to, but kind of points to the cross, which is cool. A lot of color. Um, color is just cool because it just brings life uh, to it. But also, it has some meaning for us uh, as a church as well, is that we have all of these amazing ministries in our church. God is doing so many cool things in so many different places. And um, all of them tend to kind of have a primary color that they use that kind of when they post and when they do graphics and all that, they kind of lean into 
a lot. And so we wanted, we wanted to have a logo that represented the fact that even though we have all of these various ministries, that we are one church, that we come together for one common purpose. And that's, that's really part of what's being said uh, just by the bringing together of all those colors in the logo. Uh, number of different versions that you'll see of that. Uh, we'll have a lined version of it that some of you are more used to and a kind of grayed out version. And then uh, you'll notice Fairfax Church. So some people will be asking because we've been using Fairfax Church a lot and people are saying, have we officially like changed the name of our church? And the answer to that is no, because the official name of our church, and it's been this forever, is Fairfax Community Church of God. That is the official legal name of our church. Uh, we're connected with uh, an organization, a movement, a denomination is called the Church of God. So our legal name, the way that we're represented in all of our legal documents is Fairfax Community Church of God. We've always shortened that down to Fairfax Church just to make it a little bit kind of easier uh, to relate to. And recently we've been kind of shortening it down just to Fairfax Church, a little bit easier. Sometimes I just use Fairfax in my writing, in my speaking. When I talk about the church, I just talk about Fairfax. And, and so, you know, whatever the kind of way in which we refer to the church, that this is still the same body of Christ that God has brought together, the same story, the same history. But you'll be seeing kind of this logo and Fairfax Church a little more in terms of uh, the stuff that we put out uh, as a congregation. And then the third thing I just wanted to say about this is that uh, one of the things that we have been processing through is, you know, we have a mission, we have core values, we have strategy, all of that. But in some respects, what is, what is the goal of every single ministry in this church, every single thing that we're doing? And uh, we've kind of been leaning into it over the pandemic, you know, for... Um, since the pandemic started, we've really been leaning in in kind of a fresh new way to the Lord's Prayer, and that has brought life to us. And, and for a long time, we were, every day, uh, I was doing something on Instagram, we were just kind of leaning in to the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the part of the Lord's Prayer that has become so meaningful to me, and I think so meaningful to us as a congregation, is just the part in the prayer where Jesus says, pray that your kingdom will come, Father, your kingdom will come, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that really is, everything that we do as a church is really connected to God's kingdom coming right here in Fairfax as it is in heaven, in our families as it is in heaven, in this community as it is in heaven, in our nation as it is in heaven, in the world as it is in heaven. And so, uh, you'll kind of be seeing that phrase just a little bit more as well, in Fairfax as it is in heaven. You'll know that's just our way of talking about the fact that everything that we do is about bringing God's kingdom to come, God's kingdom to bear in what we are doing in this place to bring God's kingdom here. And, uh, and I just want to, you know, before we go any further today, I, I just want to pray again the Lord's Prayer and pray for that in the life of our church. So would you just bow with me in prayer? God, we are so thankful for what um, you are doing in the life of this church, and we're so thankful for the way in which you are working, and, and it really is our prayer to, to live out the prayer that you taught us to pray, Lord. And so we just once again just offer to you this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven, in Fairfax as it is in heaven, in our country as it is in heaven, in our world as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Can we just give the Lord a praise offering for what he's doing? Um, the other thing I want to say, I mentioned that this is baptism weekend, and um, I just want to say a word. We have a number of folks that are, are getting baptized. Last night was just awesome, and, and we have folks that have made the decision to get baptized, going to be baptized in this service and in the 1115 service. But um, as, as almost every time that we have baptism, God's spirit is at work in the lives of individuals that maybe didn't come into the service uh, planning to get baptized, but God begins to work um, on your heart, and, and it really just becomes a sense of, yeah, this is, this is the right thing, and this is the right time. And as we talk about often, baptism is not a symbol that you have arrived anywhere in your spiritual journey. It's that you have started your journey with Christ. And if you've started your journey with Christ, you're a follower of Christ, you've made that decision to follow Jesus, and you haven't been baptized since you made that decision. I know some of you were maybe baptized as infants. Your parents baptized you in kind of an anticipatory faith that you would come to know Jesus. But since you've come to know Jesus, you've never been baptized. I would just encourage you uh, to do that. And um, I have a sense as we kind of work through the message uh, today that God's Spirit is going to be speaking to some hearts. And, and I just want you to know... Um, if God is really leading you to get baptized today and you hadn't planned on that and you didn't bring anything, we have everything that you need in terms of just uh, clothes to put on, to get baptized, shirt and shorts to wear and all of that kind of stuff, towels to get dried out, everything that you need. So it's not a logistic issue, it's just a spiritual issue in terms of responding to that. And so when we get to the end of the service and we send everyone out that's getting baptized, if, if you feel like God is calling you uh, to do that, just make your way out into the lobby. There'll be some folks there that can give you the instructions, give you uh, all the stuff that you need, point you in the right direction, all of that. You don't have to worry about any of those logistics. Just, um, just focus on what God is saying um, to your heart uh, today. All right, I mentioned last week uh, that we're starting this new series. It's called Witness, and it's this 11-week study in the book of Acts. So we're going to be able to dive into the book of Acts and really spend some time there. And I talked about how this is the perfect series for like right after Easter because this is what happened after the resurrection. You, know, you get to the end of the Gospels and all the Gospels end with the resurrection of Jesus. And it's like, well, what happens after that? Well, this is what happens after that. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see what takes place after the resurrection. You see the forming, the formation of the church, and you see the church moving from being this little Jewish sect to being this multi-ethnic, multicultural, global movement where everyone, everyone, everyone is welcome. And as I mentioned last week, Acts is written by a guy named Luke, Dr. Luke, a physician, and uh, he wrote he wrote two books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And Acts is like the second installment of a two-book series. And he wrote both of the books to a guy named Theophilus, who we don't really know. It's, 
one of the very, very few books in Scripture, these two books that were written to, a, to an individual, not written to a church, not written to an area, um, not written to like in general to the people of God, but written to one specific person. It was written to a guy named Theophilus who, again, we don't know that much about, but we know that probably he was a skeptic, probably he was trying to connect the dots trying to figure out. He was interested in Jesus, interested in what was happening, but wasn't quite sure that he was ready to put his faith in Jesus because Luke, as he writes the gospel and as he writes the book of Luke, it's so clear that he's writing it in a way that as Theophilus is reading this, that he would come to faith. And uh, so we talked about last week how Jesus spent 40 days after the resurrection convincing his followers that he was really alive, uh, 40 days doing that and 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. And the last thing Jesus does before he ascends into heaven is he gives them this promise. And this is what we talked about last week. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's the promise. You're going to receive power. And the power of the Holy Spirit is going to allow you to fulfill this mission that I've called you to, to be my witnesses throughout the world. And then you get to chapter two, and chapter two is where we see the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus makes in chapter one. And this is how chapter two starts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of the believers. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I think this passage um, kind of is inviting us to four things. And I just wanted to kind of tell you what those four things are and then, and then spend some time unpacking. I think it's inviting us to let the fire fall on you, first of all. Secondly, to let Pentecost shape you. Third, to let the Spirit intoxicate you. And fourth, to let the gospel pierce you. And so I just wanna spend a little time unpacking those today. The first is this, let the fire fall on you. In the Old Testament, when God's glorious presence made itself manifest to people, oftentimes it showed up as fire. So when God is making his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, God appears to him as this blazing torch. And the presence of God, the glory of God, is like seen in this blazing torch. And when God first appears to Moses, he speaks to him, if you remember, through a burning bush, a bush that's on fire but never burns up. And the glory of God and the presence of God is kind of seen in that burning bush. And when God comes down on Mount Sinai and appears to the people of Israel and gives Moses the Ten Commandments, he comes down as fire and as smoke. And when God is leading the Israelites through the wilderness, he leads them through the day through a pillar of cloud, and through the night he leads them through a pillar of fire. And so the presence of God, the guiding presence of God, the glory of God is seen in this pillar of fire. In Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God, he sees fire everywhere. Like that's what he sees. And so now think about this. On the day of Pentecost, we see this 
fire coming down. There's this sound of a mighty wind. So I don't know if any of you have ever been in like the middle of a tornado or hurricane or whatever, but a lot of people who have experienced that say the, the sound of it is more frightening than the actual wind. You know, it's like the wind is what destroys everything, but the sound is so incredibly frightening. And that's what they hear when they're gathered in this place. They hear the sound of like a hurricane or a tornado and then fire comes down and fire again always represents the presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God, all that. Except in this case, the fire comes down on every single believer. And the symbolism there is so clear, it's so powerful. It's the declaration that through the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, the presence of God, the power of God is not limited to one space. The glory of God, the power of God is resident in every single believer. In a sense, what's being symbolized here is that now, through the power of God's Holy Spirit coming to be resident within the life of every single believer, that every single believer is a burning bush, that every single believer is a blazing torch, that every single believer is a pillar of fire. And notice that it's not just the apostles upon whom the fire falls. The apostles were like the ordained leaders in the church. They were like the pastors, the vocational ministers, all of that. And it wasn't just that the fire fell on like the clergy, on the pastors. The fire didn't just fall on them. The fire fell on all of the believers. So the fire fell on the clergy and the fire fell on the laity. The fire fell on men and the fire fell on women. The fire fell on the young and the fire fell on the old. So right from the beginning of the church, there's like no distinctions in the church. Like it doesn't matter what your vocation is, it doesn't matter what your gender is, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, it doesn't matter what your race is, it doesn't matter what your age is, it doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your background is. If you are a follower of Jesus, God wants the fire of the Holy Spirit to fall on you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he wants you to be a burning bush. He wants you to be a blazing torch. He wants you to be a pillar of fire. He wants his fiery presence to fall on every single follower of Jesus Christ, which means that there are no second-class citizens in the church. Whatever God has called you to do, whatever the church needs you to do, God has given you the fire. He has given you the power to do it. So that should be our daily prayer. God, let your fire fall on me today. Let your glory fall on me today. Let your power be resident in me today. Let your presence be seen in my life today. Let your fire fall on me. Second thing is this, let the fire fall on you and let Pentecost shape you. It says in, in verse five and following, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, like a hurricane, a tornado, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all of these men who are speaking, are they not all Galileans? 
Like, don't they all speak the same language is what they're saying. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. So we're told in verse four that these Holy Spirit believers began to speak in other tongues. But you know, the Bible has a lot of different places, especially in the New Testament where it talks about tongues and the tongues that's being talked about here in Acts is different from like the tongues that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, where he's writing to the church in Ephesus and, or in Corinthian, in Corinth, and he instructs anyone who prays in a tongue in a worship service to either interpret what they're saying or to find an interpreter to, to say or to communicate what they're saying. Why? Because Paul is saying, if you don't, people are not gonna understand what you're praying about. Like if you don't find someone to interpret this, this prayer that you're offering in a tongue that's not understandable to anyone else, if someone doesn't interpret that or if you don't interpret that, then people are not gonna understand what's being said and it's not gonna be helpful to them. And when we come together, everything needs to be helpful to folks and it needs to be understood by those who are around. But in Acts 2, the, acts that are, the, the tongues that are being spoken of are are understood by everyone because everyone is miraculously hearing what is being said in their own language. And what they're hearing is the gospel, what Luke calls the wonders of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and it's being spoken by these Galileans, all who speak one language, but it's being heard by all of these other people who are hearing it in their own language. Now, the reason that there was this incredible diversity of languages and cultures and nationalities that were gathered in Jerusalem at this time is because it was Pentecost. And Pentecost, you know, we talk about Pentecost as kind of a Christian celebration, but it's because of what happened on Pentecost. Pentecost is actually a Jewish festival. It's actually a Jewish celebration. It's a festival that took place 50 days after Passover. And when Pentecost would come, Jews from all over the known world would travel back to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So the city would be filled with all these people from all these different nationalities, all of these different cultures, some that were Jewish by birth, some that were converts to Judaism, all who spoke all these different languages, most of whom Hebrew was not their first language. So you have all of this diversity because they've come back to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost. So in order that everyone who's present could hear the gospel and understand it, God performs this miracle. God performs this miracle, makes it possible for everyone to hear what's being said in his own language. Now, that's miraculous, but there's more going on here than just the, this, this miraculous thing that God does that allows communication to take place. There's a reason that the fulfillment of Jesus' promise 
to send his Holy Spirit. So he promises to send his Holy Spirit. He doesn't say when it is and what it's gonna be. He just promises in chapter one to send his Holy Spirit to give everyone power to allow the fire of God's Spirit to fall on them so they can be his witnesses and communicate the gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. But he doesn't say when that's going to happen. There's a reason that happens on Pentecost and doesn't happen two weeks before Pentecost or two weeks after Pentecost. There's a reason that it happens on Pentecost. And the reason is so that because it was this, it was this opportunity right from the start where God is making it clear that no language, no culture should take precedence over other languages, other cultures, other nationalities when it comes to the gospel. So in a very real sense, there is no original language or no original culture of the gospel. Because on the day the church was born, on the very first day in the life of the church, when the first sermon is being preached, it is being heard in all of these different languages, to all of these different nationalities, to all of these different cultural groups. There's a reason that it took place on the day of Pentecost because God is wanting to communicate that the gospel is not particular to or gives preference to a particular language or a particular nation or a particular culture, none of that. Right from the beginning, God is declaring that the gospel cannot be reduced to a Hebrew faith or an Aramaic faith or a Greek faith or a Latin faith or an English faith or a Spanish faith or an Arabic faith, that when it comes to the gospel that there is no language, no culture, no geographic region that takes precedence over any other language or culture or geographical region. In his book, The Lost History of Christianity, Philip Jenkins chronicles how the Christian church grew in the first, you know, it's been 2,000 years since all of this happened. And for most of us, when we think about the Christian church and where, you know, where there are followers of Jesus and who has shaped our theological thought and the books that maybe we've read if we have a theological background or whatever, like a lot of that is shaped by kind of more recent history. And one of the things that Jenkins does, a fascinating book on the lost history of Christianity, is he talks about how the first thousand years of the church's existence, the gospel just exploded. The church just exploded in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East. It grew way faster in those locations than it grew in Europe. And then between around 12,000 AD and 16,000 AD, it was decimated in many of those places, decimated by other cultures, decimated by other religions, sometimes peacefully, oftentimes with incredible acts of violence, all of which led, as I mentioned last week, to a church in the late 1700s, early 1800s, globally, that was 90% white and located primarily in Europe and the United States. But then, over the last 200 plus years, think about that, 200 plus years out of 2,000 years, over the past 200 plus years, it has changed dramatically. And now 80% of followers of Jesus 
are made up of people of color living outside of Europe and the United States. The church is growing in the global south, like Africa and Africa and Asia and South America. It's just exploding in the global south. And even in the face of intense persecution, the Middle East is witnessing gospel movements that have not been seen for over a thousand years, that the gospel is just exploding. And this is the point, the character and the nature of the church continues to be shaped, like you cannot limit the church for very long to a particular geography, a particular language, a particular region, that the church has been shaped from the very beginning by this multi-ethnic, multi national, multicultural, multilingual experience of Pentecost. Like there's a reason that organizations like Wycliffe and others have spent time and energy, you know, taking the gospel and translate it into every single language and every possible dialect because that's the Pentecost church. Like from the very beginning, the church was about being this multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural church. And if we're followers of Jesus, we have to be shaped by Pentecost as well. Third thing is this, let the fire fall on you, let Pentecost shape you, and let the spirit intoxicate you. When the people saw how joyful these Disciples were the people who were gathered from all these different parts of the world, and they saw how joyful these disciples were and how inhibited they were in communicating the gospel. They thought they were drunk. It says in verse 12 and 13, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, like, what's going on here? What does all this mean? And some of them said, they began to make fun of them and said, well, it's pretty clear they've had way too much to drink. Like, these folks are drunk. Now, why did they think they were drunk? Well, because they were so bold and they were so uninhibited about sharing the gospel, they thought they were drunk because that's what alcohol does, right? It lowers your inhibitions. Like when you're drunk, you say things that you wouldn't normally say. When you are drunk, you do things that you would not normally do. When you are drunk, you post things that you would not normally post, that it lowers your inhibitions. Now the reason that, that that happens with alcohol is because alcohol, as many of you know, is a depressant, and not a depressant in the sense that it depresses you, at least not in the moment, it's a depressant in the sense that it depresses part of your brain functions. So in other words, the reason when you drink and you get drunk that you're less inhibited is because you are more stupid. That's why you're less inhibited, like you're less aware of reality. You're less aware of the implications of reality. You're less aware of the implications of what you're saying and what you're doing and what you're posting and all of that. And being less aware of reality makes you less inhibited. So the people in Jerusalem see all of these Jesus followers who are joyful, they're happy, they're uninhibited, and, and they assume that they must be drunk. And in a sense, truly in a biblical sense, they are drunk, but they're drunk in the same way that the Apostle Paul encouraged the believers in Ephesus to be drunk when he says in Ephesians 5, 18, 
Don't be drunk with wine. Be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Like, allow the Holy Spirit to intoxicate you. And the Holy Spirit doesn't bring you joy and give you boldness and lower your inhibitions because it makes you less aware of reality. It does all of that because it makes you more aware of reality. The Holy Spirit shows you the way things really are. The Holy Spirit so overwhelms you with the wonders of God and the beauty of the gospel and the reality of God's love that it takes away all of your inhibitions about sharing that love with others. Now, that doesn't mean that when we're intoxicated with the Spirit, doesn't mean that when we are filled with the Spirit, that letting go of our inhibitions about sharing the gospel will always be easy. Because it's risky doing that. We put some things at risk when we lower our inhibitions and we share the gospel. It makes us feel a little bit more vulnerable at times. Like we're never quite sure how people are going to respond, right? We're never quite sure how people are gonna react to what we're saying. Andy Crouch, in his book, Strong and Weak, talks about that kind of vulnerability. He's talking about it in a broader sense, but it applies to this as well. He talks about that kind of vulnerability this way. He says, vulnerability that leads to flourishing requires risk, which is the possibility of loss. The chance that when we act, we will lose something of value. Now, I love this sentence. To risk is to open ourselves up to the chance that something will go wrong. To risk is to open yourself up to the chance that something may go wrong. And I think that's what it means to be intoxicated by the Spirit. It's the willingness to allow ourselves to be so vulnerable that we are not paralyzed by the idea that something may go wrong. To allow ourselves to be so vulnerable that that we're not paralyzed by the idea that we might not say the right thing or we might not say it in exactly the right way or someone may reject the message or someone may actually reject us. It's like being willing to be so vulnerable that we're not paralyzed by the fact that when we communicate the gospel, when we live the gospel, when we show the love of Christ that maybe something might go wrong but we're not gonna be paralyzed by that, that we know things might go wrong, but we're willing to take the risk. We are unwilling to be controlled by what might happen. We are unwilling to be controlled by things that are definitely outside of our control. Like the disciples on the day of Pentecost, we are willing to be daringly bold and joyfully uninhibited. So let the fire fall on you. Let Pentecost shape you. Let the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, intoxicate you and let the gospel pierce you. After all of the believers had shared the gospel and people had heard the gospel in their own language, Peter is the one who stands up and he preaches the first sermon. And it's a short sermon. And uh, he wraps it up with this statement. This is his final statement. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And after hearing Peter's sermon and after hearing all these other declarations of the gospel by all these other believers, this is the response of those in the crowd. When the people heard this, they'd heard the gospel from all these different folks in their own language, they heard Peter preach this sermon about the gospel and rehearsing the mighty acts of God, all of that. When they hear this, this is their response. 
They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Luke says that after the people heard the gospel, that literally cut to the heart is like they had their hearts pierced. Like their hearts were pierced with the gospel. And that's what happens when our sin moves from being this abstract thing that we kind of recognize. Yeah, I know I've blown it. I know, you know, everyone falls short of the glory of God. I know that I'm not always the person that God created me to be. Um, This kind of cognitive idea, well, I'm human. We all fail. We all struggle. All of that. This kind of cognitive idea of our sin. When it moves from kind of this cognitive reality to this personal thing where we feel it deep within our soul, it pierces our soul. It pierces our heart. It melts our heart. And that's when real lasting change begins to happen. And Luke, it's interesting, you know, Luke as the writer of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, in both of those books, Peter is a a significant figure. And he's a significant figure here because he's preaching the first sermon in the history of the church and becomes a part of the movement and the spread of the gospel. But he's a significant figure in the gospel of Luke too because he's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And Peter is the one who denies Jesus. And you may remember that. Luke tells this story. And he tells this story, you know, he tells this story about Peter being the one that preached the first sermon, but he also tells Theophilus this story about Peter being the one who denies Jesus. And you remember it was when Jesus was engaging this like mock trial that, that they were putting him through that was going to lead to his crucifixion. And, and Peter has said, you know, I'll never betray you. I'm with you. I'm on your side. You can count on me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a follower. I'll never turn my back. And Jesus says to him, well, actually, you are going to turn your back and you are going to deny me. And you're going to deny me three times. And before the rooster crows in the morning, like you will have turned your back on me three times. And Peter says, ah, I'm never going to do that. And then Peter's like in the garden, and, and people are coming up to say, aren't you one of the disciples? And he gets scared, and he's not sure he wants to be associated in that moment with Jesus, and he denies Jesus once, twice, three times, and then the rooster crows, and we're told that in that moment, there's this awareness like that he's blown it. There's this awareness that, that he's failed Jesus in this significant way, and he no doubt he feels guilt in that moment, he feels shame in that moment, feels all the things that you feel when you know you've done something wrong in that moment. But it's not till later when Jesus walks by and the text tells us that Jesus looks at Peter knowing what Peter has just done. And Peter sees, no doubt, in Jesus' eyes the You know, the love, the acceptance, all of that, but also just the hurt and the pain that goes with being betrayed by someone who he has given so much to. And we're told that it's in that moment that Peter is cut to the heart. The same phrase that's said in the Gospel of Luke is said in Acts, that he was cut to the heart. And that's when he goes out and weeps bitterly. That's when what he has done gets real. That's when his heart melts. That's when he repents of his sin and turns. 
You know, it's one thing to know that you've broken the rules. Like when you know you've broken the rules, you feel bad about it, you feel guilty about it, sometimes you feel shame about it. There are things that maybe we've done or that you've done that have broken the rules and you kind of feel guilty about that, maybe even feel some shame about that. It's one thing to know you've broken the rules. It's another thing to know that you've broken God's heart. And that's when things begin to change. That's when, for us, it moves from just like, oh, you know, forgive me for this. Like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, and that was wrong, and I need some forgiveness for that, and I don't want to feel guilty about that. Like, that's when it moves from forgiveness to repentance. That's when it moves from forgiveness to, to actually being willing to change. You know, that's what the word repent means. We see that word constantly within the New Testament. Sometimes we think it kind of means the same as asking for forgiveness or, or, or confessing our sins. And no, it, it's like, it's not just confessing. It's not just acknowledging. It's not just like asking for forgiveness. Repentance is about turning. That's what the word means. It means to turn. It means to head in a different direction. It means to change direct uh, trajectory. It means that I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that the direction I'm heading here or what I have done like it hasn't just broken the rules, it has broken God's heart, and I wanna turn from that. And that's when change really begins to happen. And Peter knows that that's what's happening here, that these people are being cut to the heart because he was cut to the heart. And he knows that people are wanting to change, and so when the people ask, what shall we do? Peter tells them this in verse 38. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. That's what he says, repent and be baptized. Peter says, that's all you have to do. One is like this inward thing, and one is like this outward thing. Thing. The inward thing is to repent, is to be willing to turn, is to be willing to allow God to change you, is to be willing to head in a different direction, in a different trajectory. It's this inside thing. And, and the outside thing is baptism, which is this outward declaration of what God is doing on the inside. That's what baptism is. Is like repentance is God doing this thing inside us where we really were cut to the heart. We we recognize that we've broken the heart of God. We want to head in a different direction. We want to turn from whatever that was, that it's this inside thing that's happening within our heart. And baptism is just the outward expression of what's happening on the inside. It's the declaration of, what's God, of what God is doing on the inside. You know, everyone's testimony of how they became a follower of Jesus is different. Like you all have, all of us have different journeys, different experiences, different people who have impacted us, different failures, different things that we've struggled with, all of these different things. But over the last 2,000 years, one thing has been the same in all of those testimonies. Whether it was in Asia or Africa or the Middle East or Europe or the United States or South America, whether it was 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,800 years ago, whenever it was, the things that have been the same is the willingness to repent and be baptized. That's the thread that connects all of these believers over all of these centuries is the willingness to repent and be baptized. In a minute, we're gonna send out all of those who are getting baptized today. And uh, when we send them out, we're gonna celebrate like they're celebrating in heaven. It says that in heaven, every time a person declares their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, life is changed, that heaven just rejoices. And heaven is rejoicing this weekend because of lives that are, 
are giving testimony to the transforming power of Jesus Christ in their lives. So we're going to celebrate as well. We're going to cheer as folks go out. But before we send them out and before we just kind of sing a song reflecting on our testimony, I want to give you an opportunity to do a little inventory in your own heart and just kind of ask you the question, has the gospel pierced your heart? Not just have you heard the gospel, do you understand the gospel, do you feel bad about some things that you've done? Has the gospel pierced your heart? Has the gospel melted your heart? Has the gospel brought you not just to the point of confession and asking for forgiveness, has it brought you to the point of repentance? of being willing to turn, of being willing to change, being willing to allow God to bring about change. That's scary, scary stuff because it involves turning over control, being vulnerable, allowing God to change you. And have you been baptized? Have you given the public declaration of the inner working of God? in your life. And I just want to give you a chance to do that. God, we're so thankful in this moment, man, as we get ready to baptize folks, as we get ready to declare the the wonders of God in lives that are saying, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus. Lord, we just pray in this moment that for those of us that perhaps the gospel needs to pierce our heart, needs to melt our heart, pray that the gospel would pierce our heart in this moment, that we would be willing to turn, to repent, to allow you to change some things in our life. You know what needs to change, to change some things. And allow us to have the boldness to give public witness to that through baptism. And we just pray that in the powerful, precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.